Murray, an alcoholic. I, I think first I should uh, commend everybody for their dedication and commitment after four wonderful days of sitting and listening to come in at this late hour. I think second I'll commend myself. <laughs> 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 being awakened on my feet at this late hour. Um, I hope I didn't lure too many of you in here under uh, false pretenses, because I know that in our society, and I expect you have noticed too, can you hear me? That uh, sexuality, when we see and hear that word in our society, we immediately equate it with genitality. And under that assumption, I think you were probably justified in expecting that I uh, might uh, describe some new and wondrous sexual acrobatics, or I might tell you, inform you of wondrous and uh, esoteric manipulations in some unsung erogenous zones. <laughs> but. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't say I couldn't. I just, I just said I wouldn't tonight. Because I really want to talk about sexuality as a as recovering sexuality involving the totality of our being. I think that. Uh, I've noticed and lived long enough to notice that when the societal pendulum swings drastically to one side uh, rather abruptly, as it has since the 60s with the uh, sexual revolution and women's lib, changing a lot of our sexual behavior and our mores and um, our attitudes towards sex, that when there's that drastic uh, rather abrupt swing, radical swing, it contains within it the uh, seeds of its own unique pathology. And uh, I think it can even appraise a society somewhat by the nature of its sicknesses. The, each death from AIDS is a statement of the condition of love in our times. So, uh, the uh, most common disorders that used to be seen in the uh, sex therapist's office were uh, anorgasmia for women and erectile problems for men. Now, with this swing of the pendulum that we've lowered the inhibitions, we've gotten rid of a lot of the restrictions, and we've shoved a lot of the shoulds, it's very interesting to note what the, the disorder of the times is. By far the most common sexual disorder seen today is inhibited sexual desire. In other words, since the restrictions are off and most anybody can do it anytime or with anybody, any place, Nobody wants to do it. They're too bored to do it. And this, I think, is the pathology that happens with sudden swings of uh, the pendulum. 
I had a, uh, oh, I've discovered too, a rather new disorder that uh, I've just recently discovered and it hasn't made the DSM-3 yet. I don't know if it ever will. I call it MOD and it's multiple orgasm disorder. And believe it or not, it's a male disorder. I think perhaps it's the female's revenge for having been accused of penis envy for so many years. I first discovered it when a young man, uh, oh, he's about 38, and that's getting younger every year, uh, came into my office, and he was almost in tears, uh, complaining of impotence. Uh, as I got a case history, uh, his face kind of lightened up. He was a young professional with four years of recovery from alcoholism and cocaine addiction. And uh, in AA, he made his recovery after a treatment center. Uh, as we talked and I began to get some history, his face kind of lit up as he told me uh, his sexual history, particularly since recovery. Before recovery, he had lost a wife and two children. She's since remarried because he was so slow in addressing his disease. But in recovery, he told me he had discovered the most wonderful thing. And he discovered because AA had told him, and he followed all her directions, that he was not to make any drastic changes during the first year. And that obviously, he said, meant that he was not supposed to make any commitments. It's wonderful what we hear when we want to hear it. And uh, so he said uh, that, uh, did I know that sex and love could be totally separated? And I said, well, I allowed his house since uh, I was about this big and told that the birds and bees did it, that I rather suspected that was true. So with this philosophy, he had, uh, he regaled me with quite a uh, history of his prowess and uh, his uh, sexual activities in recovery, carefully separating always love from uh, uh, sexuality. <clears throat> and his complaint now though he had been admired far and wide, and he practically had documents to prove this to me. <laughs> he was kind of a nice guy, he really was. But he, uh, this current complaint appeared, as near as I could get his history, to be uh, specific to one female, one that he had met within the last couple months. Um, I asked if she uh, put him down a lot or whether there was something peculiar to her sexual activity or her attitude that had uh, caused this new malady to hit him. Incidentally, he made a few forays outside of the relationship to see whether the equipment all worked, and it worked with other people, but not with this gal. And of course, being a recovering alcoholic, an addict, it had to be that one, the one that was unattainable at that moment. Oh, you know, I want what I want when I want it. So, anyhow, he uh, didn't seem to think she'd been putting him down. Of course, he had not related to this woman emotionally in any way, so he really didn't know what she was saying to him anyhow. I mean, he took everything at face value, of course. So, uh, 
I asked if uh, she would come in perhaps to uh, help him with his problem and I could meet her. So she did. I had to avoid catching her eye because uh, from the minute she came in, she was trying to seduce me into a collusion with her. You know, let's really castrate this boy. <laughs> I looked at the floor most of the time to uh, resist the temptation. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, it turned out he said that uh, before she came in, he told me the one thing he said. I said, did she ever say anything when you were having sex? I mean, what in the world would uh, bring this problem on? He said, well, she did say the first time they had sex, and of course that was the first date they had. She did say, in the middle of intercourse, uh, she hinted that if he were a little more generously endowed, he'd find her cheese spot. Uh, <laughs> this all goes to show where, how much she knew about where her cheese spot was, but he said that that didn't bother him because uh, he'd had so much uh, approval from other women and so many compliments on his generous endowment that he really didn't take that remark very seriously. Well, when she came in, I soon realized that uh, he should have been listening to more than her surface words. She'd been in the ring several times and if we, had, we talked to each other, uh, she revealed that she had an alcoholic father, had been molested as a child, had three divorces, and uh, as I said, she'd been in the ring quite a few times. But anyhow, when, I, when she left, and the next few times I worked with him, I suggested that, uh, well, as I got more history, too, he began to tell me things like the fact that she was uh, multiple, she had multiple orgasms, and she counted them out loud. Now, one night she might have six, another night she might have eight, another night she might have ten. And this left him, and I think I have since seen this phenomenon since, um, feeling no closure. We call it, in psychology, I hadn't thought for 30 years of the Zeiger, Nick, or Nack, I can't even remember which phenomenon, which is a gestalt phenomenon of, un of interrupted tasks, and it causes a lot of anxiety because he never knew whether his performance got an A, whether he was doing well, whether she was just on the brink of having the 11th orgasm. <laughs> and we do live in the uh, era of the big O, so it, it just kept him without any closure, without any feeling of getting a good grade for his performance. The only thing I could liken it to in my own feelings was that he must have felt like, you know, when they took pennies out of the children's piggy bank, he always shook it, feeling there must be one more. <laughs> I think this is sort of that feeling that when you hear the ring on the payphone that certainly a coin has been returned. <laughs> So that's my new disorder of the times, is multiple orgasmic disorder. Um, another new one, of course, is sexual addiction, which we'll talk about a little bit later. I'm frequently asked whether um, sexual issues should be addressed early in recovery, even in treatment. And I won't go into that too much except to say that uh, 
I think education is the key word that um, we really owe people education in not only sexuality and dysfunctions, but in what is really human sexuality. I think probably recovering people should be forewarned, but not to the point of uh, scaring them into uh, um, self-fulfilling prophecy. I think every alcoholic male in treatment or in early recovery should understand that um, he may be impotent for several months, three, four months, uh, and some drug addicts too. Uh, I think this male alcoholic should also know that within that same time frame, everything going well, he will awaken some morning, and much to his uh, ineffable bliss, he will find that his pride and joy is back on active duty and standing at attention. And the female should know that her sexual response cycle and lubrication will be restored within that same period of time, all going well. Uh, there's a body of literature now, very respectable literature, on the specific effects of specific drugs on uh, sexual function and organs. And I think early patients should know some about that. Uh, and because your patients are uh, physicians, uh, don't think that they're going to know all this. They'll know the plumbing. But uh, if you remember the number of hours you had in uh, chemical dependency and addiction, in your curriculum at school, uh, cut that in half, and it'll be the number of hours you had in human sexuality. Uh, I'm reminded, just flash through my mind, I'm reminded of a woman I worked with with chronic alcoholism. I'm usually a short-term therapist, but uh, she drank to kill, uh, to die. It was terrible. But uh, her husband was a physician. And pathologist. And I got very fond of these two as time went on. I even made house calls and diagnosed one kid as schizophrenic. It was quite a family. There were 12 children. Now, when she drank, she would frequently and loudly complain to me that 12 children, 15 pregnancies, how many times at intercourse and never had an orgasm. So, once in a while, he and I would discuss a little about sexuality and he said to me one day in all earnestness, um, you know, Marie, the absolutely dullest, I just hated it. It was so boring, my rotation and GYN. He said, there are only three organs. I said, oh my God, but the infinite permutations upon them. <laughs> it was obvious that he was thinking of uh, pathology and I was thinking of ecstasy. But, <laughs> anyhow, um, so we come now to the point where you're probably asking what do spirituality, um, sexuality, and intimacy have in common? One thing, they're all energized by love. And the other thing about them is that the first step to each one of them 
is to learn to love yourself. The first step to really human sexuality is to learn to love yourself. There can be really no spirituality without learning to love yourself. And certainly, the sine qua non for uh, intimacy is learning to love ourselves. That's kind of profound and maybe a little pompous to say. And of course, the immediate question arises, well, great, how do we do that? Well, for recovering people, the way we begin to do it is to go to meetings, get a sponsor, and work the steps. Because we bring to AA and our recovery early, uh, not only for admittance of desire to stop drinking, but we bring our shame. And shame is a far different thing than guilt. Uh, we may be guilty, we may feel bad about uh, all the things we've done, and we can make amends for that. But shame is a feeling of not I have made a mistake, but I am a mistake. Um, I am deficient as a human being. I am bad, not that I have done bad things. And the beginning of healing of shame occurs by going to meetings and listening and sharing. Actually, shame can only be, I think, healed uh, by sharing with other human beings. And we have a step that takes care of that. If it were just admitting to ourselves and to God, I don't believe our shame would be healed because we can always rationalize, well, God knows everything anyhow. And we know that we're deficient and that we're uh, filled with this thing called shame. But when we share it with another human being, the Course in Miracles says uh, healing occurs when two minds recognize their oneness and become glad. When two persons come together for healing, God is there. So that's the beginning of our healing of our shame when we can begin to look and see that to be human is enough. I think particularly in our population that uh, we're kind of all or never people. I was either trying to be all good or I make one little error and I say, oh, to hell with it. You know, then I'm all bad. I drink uh, one ounce of uh, alcohol Look, I've shot it all. I might as well drink the bottle. So we're kind of um, either-or people. And that isn't what being human's all about. And after all these years, it's taken me to be an AA for some years to figure out that that isn't what being human is all about. The poets have tried to tell us that we're neither beast nor angel. Um... Chinese were neither heaven nor earth. We're the middle ground. We're neither all bad nor all good. And to be human is just enough. It's to admit both of these entities, to, uh, to bring them together within us, is healing. Uh, 
to, to try to be either one or the other when actually to be human is both and. We are both man and beast. We are both good and bad. And to not admit these, to try and repress one whole part of us uh, takes an awful lot of energy and it makes us always feel not quite adequate. Uh, the other healing that occurs and has to occur other than our healing of our shame through AA is I think we have to get connected with our past. Um, you heard Sharon Wegscheider give all the reasons that people bring up as resistance to doing that. But if we're not connected with our history, if we don't, that's okay, if we don't know our history, we're doomed to repeat it. And we need to get back to where did the shame first come from? Obviously, we organized our chemical life around the shame. But I think we need to get back in our history to find out where this shame originally came from. It seems to have uh, come very frequently for what I call, uh, well, I call it the, uh, the matching game. Um, you heard uh, Dr. Whitfield talk in his, in his book, you've read probably, Healing the Child Within, where there is that hurt piece that gets stuck somehow. And I just call it the matching game because if somewhere early in our development, say it was even the primary relationship between mother and child, doesn't really matter what occurred, it matters how we perceived it. If we began to perceive that somehow, well, if this all were going better, I'd be more adequate, you know. If I were more adequate, I could make it go better. It'd go better if I were more lovable, I'd be more loved. Uh, if I were more worthy, I'd be treated with more respect. So I must be unworthy, I must be unlovable, I must be inadequate. Obviously, I'm powerless and helpless. I can't go out and sell newspapers, I'm only two years old. Those feelings, that's, are all, shame is shorthand for all those feelings. Now, if all those are deep in us and we get those repressed way back down to the unconscious, and we grow up and we become out in this external world, we become successful, we become whatever it is that we become, and we still have this little stuck piece of us that pinches us every once in a while. It isn't going to match with the outside. If I have, for instance, these feelings of being unlovable, inadequate, unworthy, and I got a great chorus out here telling me how wonderful, how marvelous, how great I am, and they're showering me with gifts and prizes. I'm going to, and I've got this little stuck piece that's saying I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable. I'm going to have a lot of tension and a lot of anxiety between these two. Now, I don't know that this little piece, this wounded piece, is in my unconscious. I don't know what's giving me the anxiety. 
So I have to do something about the external world. I'm going to shut that Greek chorus up. <clears throat> now I can do that in a lot of ways, and to each of us are, in our own temperaments, we'll do it in different ways. You know, I could lean back and say, uh, well, where are your degrees? You know, what do you know to the Greek chorus? And I could minimize their opinions to myself. Uh, I could go, uh, I could take a drink. Boy, would that do it. That's what I call going for the fix. And we do that in myriad ways out there to get what's happening out here, which is really our own creation anyhow, to match what these feelings inside say about us and to us. A drink, my self-worth is always soluble in alcohol, so I could go for the fix and the fall and back over here to the familiar feelings. Um, I could, uh, we each can do different things. Uh, I was thinking today somebody uh, said they liked something I did uh, in Spain, and I almost fought with her. Something of my unhealed child must not be healed yet, because instead of just saying thank you, I wanted to fight her. I said, well, it really wasn't at all to do. You tried to ever compliment somebody that had this little piece unconsciously in them. So we need to heal that, and uh, we need to get back in and talk to that child. We need to, to heal that shame before we can really love ourselves, and before we can honestly relate to uh, another human being in our wholeness. As long as pieces of us are hidden from ourselves, we cannot relate as our true selves. So when we get some of this healed and some of these things matched, because we do make our external world, the world out here is just a, uh, is just a potential. You know, how does the uh, masochist find the sadist? I say just throw them out there and they find each other because we have infinite precision in radar. And if somebody has this view of themselves that they're unworthy, who are they going to find out here? They're going to find somebody that gets them back, the fix and the fall, and back over here to their familiar feelings of shame and being unworthy. Because if somebody comes along and treats them differently, they're going to argue like I did with that person. Or, you know, like somebody, if uh, I say that's a good-looking suit and your small child is wounded, you know, they're going to fight. So. If somebody comes, there was a study done that bears this out that's kind of interesting. Um, I think it was done at the University of Minnesota some years ago. It was a study of uh, a group of uh, women who were married to alcoholics and divorced or the alcoholic died. And they followed these women. It was a longitudinal study. And uh, what do you think happened? You know, they said, uh, Oh, the community, friends, everybody would say, oh, well, that poor woman, you know, and she took such good care of him and she suffered so. Oh, I'm so glad now she's remarrying and she's going to be so much happier. Always looked different on the outside. Never, they were too smart to do the same thing that looked the same in the external world. But mysterious things began to happen. One woman, uh, who'd had to care for her husband and go back to work and, oh, 
there. They've had such financial burdens. Married uh, a man very successful, and it looked just great, and everybody was so happy for her. And mysteriously, within a few years, he lost his business. She was back out working and taking care of him. Another one, for instance, uh, they weren't, they really, very few of them married alcoholics again. They were a little more subtle than that. Uh, another one mar would marry a man in perfect health, uh, fitness personified, mysteriously, within a short time, a few years, he'd get some long lingering illness and she was out taking care of him again. What never changed in the pattern of these women's lives was their own dynamic, their own feeling of who they were. And who they felt they were were victims. And this was reenacted again and again in their lives. And we all do this. It's called, uh, in the jargon, it's called a repetition compulsion. Uh, Carl Jung, the Swiss psychiatrist, said, if there is a conflict or a trauma, refused recognition, in other words, not brought to awareness, it will be reenacted, it, it will be inadequately, inadequately dealt with imperfectly by recreating it in the external world. I just call it the matching game. That there's too much tension and anxiety if we don't match this very inner feeling of how we feel about ourselves. Now, um, a lot of this is healed in uh, AA by our sharing and uh, by our meeting other people. Um, and this view of ourselves uh, really has to be uh, changed before we can have uh, any intimacy with another human being. The other thing that, uh, oh, the uh, main thing that happens in uh, AA that helps us is a change, I think it's the most dramatic thing, and I think it's the most helpful th uh, hopeful thing for the world with this proliferation of 12-step uh, groups all over the world, really. Uh, you know, 12 steps for, for everyone at this point is that it changes our belief system and the addictive, we live in an addictive society and our belief systems fit right in with the addictive society that something out there will make me feel better in here. And if something out there doesn't make me feel better in here, then something out there is to blame. And the 12 steps turn this whole frame of reference into that we no longer can blame something out there. And we get past uh, our blaming others, we get past uh, blaming circumstances, and we begin to take responsibility. We take it at many levels as we recover. First one is for our behavior, but then we begin to take it at deeper levels for uh, for our attitudes, for uh, 
for healing this child within, for being conscious, because the uh, journey of AA is one of consciousness. Once we have become aware of something, we're responsible for it. If I don't know that this hurt child is in me, if I don't know um, any of uh, something about myself, I can't very well be responsible for it. And we learn through AA to be aware. Um, we learn to be what I call, I divide the world kind of into, uh, being from Florida, snorkelers and scuba divers. And the snorkelers go along on the surface of the human condition and they've got flippers on their feet and the sun on their back and uh, just along the surface enjoying life. And the scuba divers, and to recover, this is what I think AA teaches us, to become aware and to become responsible for things that we have hidden from ourselves, to know ourselves, which is then part of the process of learning to love ourselves. We scuba divers have to go down into the caves and the big frightening fish, but each time that we come up, and Jung has noticed this, uh, noted this, that uh, neurosis is a, a normal, a part of normal human development. And people who don't go through this and ask the big questions of why are we here and what is the meaning are really cases of arrested development. And he pointed out that each time we go down into the unconscious, or as I say, to the floor of the ocean and in the caves, we bring up gifts uh, that become part of us and make us more human and more whole and complete. Uh, I don't know what time I started this. Does anybody? Huh? Just after 10. Kid. I really got to hurry then. Um, well, let me skip all sorts of things here and see if I can... Uh, what we need to do, okay, uh, once we've connected with this child within, is that we, uh, we have to quiet the mind and become acquainted with our emotions and identify them so that we can meet what is our true self. And our true self is our center of gravity, it's deep within us, it is our ongoing feeling of whom we are, who we are, uh, it remains constant, we always have that in us when we once get in touch with it. It's like uh, Kamu says, that in the midst of winter I finally found there was in me an invincible summer. It's that spot that we can retreat to, no masks, no roles, but our true self. And this is what uh, we need to get in touch with in order to relate to and truly with other people. We have to uh, learn how to uh, clear our minds, uh, quiet our minds. We can do that through meditation, uh, identify our feelings and emotions. And uh, uh, then, once we have uh, found this true self, then we can begin to uh, have some intimacy with ourselves. Now, intimacy is always in relation 
to something else, something other than us, because that is how we define the self, whether it's our relationship with our higher power or a relationship with another person. And we have to find this true self and then in relationship uh, to, the, to something else. Uh, we can... Um, I'm trying to skip here and I'm losing my train of thought. Uh, I do some exercises with people to help them get in touch with this true self because all of us, I think we're born with what I might call intimations of intimacy. We all have a feeling and the feelings that we have usually by the time we have gone through a chemical uh, dependency and addiction is that we're alienated from that true self. And we know somewhere in our depths what it feels like to be related to the true self, to our higher power. So I do a kind of exercise, because this is in all of us. And in me, the first to, to look back and to remember that connectedness and intimacy is a connectedness with a true self, with all of nature, with our higher power, with other humans. It is our total connectedness with the universe. And I can remember a specific example of that early in my life. I must have been around, oh, I don't know, five or six. And my grandfather owned a, uh, a fruit farm on the banks of uh, in Michigan and uh, you could slide down the ravine and the sand down to the shores of Lake Michigan which was then pristine pure clear you could see the bottom clear out in the middle of Lake Michigan uh, one uh, one time we were there for summer vacation and uh, I got to spend the night out on a blanket with two older cousins around I must have been about six and uh, about 10 and 12 or 12 and 14 years old. And I can remember that feeling of intimacy with the universe, that lying on the uh, blanket, feeling the still warm sand under me, listening to the uh, waves lapping gently up on the shore, a trusted cousin on each side of me, and back up on the hill, the house with the lights on with my mother and father in it and my grandfather and grandmother and the skies above me with stars, even shooting stars and I can remember a shiver going through me of absolute intimacy with myself with the world with the human race and human beings of trust and a connectedness with the whole cosmos and even people I find who've come from extremely dysfunctional families can with help find one moment in their lives when they have connected. Because I think we have that animation when we're born of that wholeness. I think all nature goes toward wholeness. And we are part of nature. And when we learn that, this is part of intimacy. It's always our connectedness with something. Now, if we take care of, and I'm, I'm going to try to hurry, if we take care of all the polarities within us and recognize these, that we are good and we are bad and we are all these polarities, if we recognize that each trait 
has its opposite. If I think that I am very generous and try to be very generous, I better be aware that underneath that, that there is always the polarity, the tension, that gives us energy, really. But if I am aware that under submerged down here is a withholding part, maybe I'm generous with money, but maybe I withhold approval from people. Maybe I withhold affection. If I can bring each of these polarities that is in us into awareness and bring them together and reconcile them, there is new energy made. And I don't have pieces of myself where I have to go behind my back and make believe that that isn't there. It takes tremendous energy to repress whole parts of ourselves. I was cleaning some books the other day and ran across cleaning books as a hopeless occupation for me because it means I take one book out, clap it together, take a cloth to it, and then see where it opened and read it. And that goes on with all the books and I don't get very far in the cleaning task. But I ran across some tidbits and one of them I ran across the other day was Salier in his work on uh, stress. And I would think of that mainly as being rather physiologically oriented and out popped a sentence from Salier, the stressed person is the person who has never made himself fully known to another human being and in consequence does not know himself. I mean, that blew my mind. This is why it's important. Because a lot of people say, well, why can't we just snorkel? I had somebody in my office the other day said, I like snorkeling. And I said, snorkel away when your head hits a rock. You know, you're not going to have what you need to do. But I'm sure that some people do like to do that and just stay there, and that's okay. That runs into, you know, hurry, because we'll now, that's part of the human task that we have to do for ourselves, to find our connectedness to resolve these polarities, to be aware of all, that all of this is in us. And then when we talk about relationships with other human beings, and I will talk just about marriage, uh, we're back then with polarities again that we're trying to resolve to make new energy. Um, uh, I say marriage because I've seen so many uh, couples that um, living together. Some I've had some for seven or eight years, and that uh, you'd think that. And I used to think when I read Bertrand uh, Russell in high school, oh, this trial marriage sounds like a very intelligent idea. Of course, I lived in an era where nobody could have trial marriages, but it sounded uh, intellectually, it sounded just great. And watching it. Uh, funniest thing happens. They may live together, as I said, seven or eight years. The minute the marriage vows are spoken, the game plan changes. Totally. Because they've been living in closeness, which is quite different from intimacy. In closeness, like with a friend, you kind of, they may be sexual too, but they're still just living in closeness. You accommodate to friends. You, uh, if they insist that you roll the toothpaste up from the bottom, you know, so what? You do it. And if you don't accommodate, then you walk out. And, you know, but the minute the marriage, 
income, well, my family does it this way, and uh, my family does it that way. And there again, then, you have polarities. Hopefully they've been settled within the person. Now you have these things to settle between people. Um, I can remember, see, if you come in with like needs, friends don't usually get married. This is, uh, and if they do, it's a very, uh, what did Sharon call it? I, I call it a very kind of a sterile mating. There's very little passion in it. Um, and there's very little growth in it, in a marriage like that.